Amen. Well, let's read the Bible together. We are looking at Isaiah 64 verses 1 through to 9 today. So if you've got a Bible at home or want to bring it up on your computer um, or phone, then please do so. Isaiah 64 verses 1 through to 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fantastic. Well, we finished our sermon series in Matthew last week, and now we're spending the next four weeks preparing our hearts for Jesus to come and be with us. This is both the 2,000 years ago Jesus coming to be with us at Christmas and also looking forward to Jesus' return, which in this season we prepare for and we long for and we celebrate. And we're thinking about this season today, this season of Advent. Now, don't worry if this is a term that is new to you. Put simply, it's a season where we look back to the first coming and look forward to the second coming. And it's a season all about waiting. We're going to explore this theme of waiting today as we look through this passage from Isaiah. And to guide our study of God's word, we're going to ask three questions. The first question is this, what are we waiting for? The second question is, what was Isaiah waiting for? And the third question is, why are we waiting? So let's get started on that first question then. What are we waiting for? Well, we're going to see that we are waiting for perfect salvation and not temporary solutions. So let's dig into the context behind the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book that is written to the people of God, the nation of Israel, about 700 years before Jesus was born. And at the start of the book, in chapter 6, a a king called King Uzziah has died. King Uzziah is a, a good king, not a perfect king, but he's a good king. And so when he dies, there is an immense amount of fear in the nation. And over the next 50 years, which the book of Isaiah covers until we get to the end, which, is, which we're approaching in this passage, 
a, a, a nation to the north of Israel, the Assyrian Empire, is rising in power and dominance and significance. Also at this time, a new king rises to power and he is called Hezekiah. Now he doesn't start off worshipping God. But as the Assyrians start to advance on the city of Jerusalem, he experiences a personal illness, which means he ends up turning to God and calling on God. And the city of Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem, results in a great military victory for the people of God. The city is saved. In other words, the nation of Israel had been granted a temporary solution. But what Isaiah is crying out for in these first three verses is a perfect salvation. He's praying for the presence of God. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens and come down in the face of a miraculous, miraculous military victory. Isaiah prays for the presence of God. He doesn't look to the temporary solution. He looks for the perfect salvation. A perfect salvation that he has to wait 700 years for in the end. Because these words are not fulfilled a few minutes after he says them. They are not fulfilled a few years or even a few decades after he says them. They're fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Let's look at that first verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, what do we celebrate at Christmas? That God took on flesh and came to dwell with us. He says, would you tear the heavens? What happened when Jesus was baptised? Well, we see the, the, the heavens open and the spirit of God descends in the form of a dove. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Well, the temple, in the temple, there's a curtain that separates the place of God from the place of humans. And this temple is torn in two. God has rendered the heavens and come down. Verse two, as when fire sets twigs ablaze. After Jesus has died and risen again, he sends his Holy Spirit on his disciples. And how does the Holy Spirit appear? as tongues of fire over them. And they are like dry kindling set ablaze to proclaim the glory of God to the nations, to make God's name known in the, in the words of verse two. And how do they do this? Through speaking in tongues, speaking in languages they didn't even know, to make the name of Jesus known to every nation on earth. Isaiah prays, cause the nations to quake before you. And what do we hear about in Philippians chapter two? Paul writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, Jesus, Christmas, the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of these verses. And we need to learn from Isaiah to look for the perfect salvation that is achieved when Jesus returns and not just temporary solutions. 
Because if we're honest with ourselves, we look for temporary solutions quite a lot. How often have you caught yourself saying what I say to myself? You know, if only I had a bit more money, if only I could get a promotion, if only I could lose weight or, or get a new job, if only, if only everything would be sorted. Now, none of these things are bad. This military victory that Isaiah has just seen is not bad, it's good. But he knows that he has to long for the perfect salvation that only Jesus can bring. You know, we've seen this with the amazing news of a vaccine over the last few weeks, which we've been praying for as a church and we are celebrating and we are thanking God for the wonderful work of the scientists who have have worked on it. But the vaccine whilst it'll sort out many things, will not cure the loneliness or the inequality or the broken relationships that have been exposed during this pandemic. Only Jesus can do that. A vaccine will get life back to normal, but only Jesus can transform the normal life into a life of meaning and hope and purpose. So Advent is a season when we look back to the first coming of Jesus, promised here in these verses, but we also long for the second coming of Jesus. That is what we're waiting for. And just as we have prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, so too do we have prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. In Revelation 21, we read that God will dwell with us on earth. He will be present forever. We read that there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain. We read that he will renew all things, bringing resurrection and new life and restored relationships with each other and with creation. And this is what Advent is looking towards. We are in a season of comfort and joy. That's our our title for this season. And it's a theme that's shared across the Church of England And this, the return of Jesus, is our greatest comfort and our greatest joy. As we think about the return of Jesus, we naturally therefore ask whether our lives reflect this reality, which is what Lee was speaking to us about last week. And when we look at our lives, we see that actually things are not all right that there are some things that aren't right in our lives. And this can be really unsettling, which is why it's so important that we read the next verses as well. Because what we're going to see in verses five through to seven is that Jesus has won a salvation for us the first time he came. And so therefore the second time that he comes, we don't need to be crippled by fear but rather we can be transformed to learn to understand it as our greatest comfort and our greatest joy because Jesus has saved us. What was Isaiah waiting for? The forgiveness of Jesus. We've just looked at verses one through to three. We're now going to look at verses five through to seven. Now you might notice that we've missed out verse four. And if you do and ask why, then you're asking a very good and a very important 
question. Let me explain. Verses 1 through to 3 are the climax of a prayer that starts in the previous chapter of Isaiah. Verse 4 then serves as sort of a little musical interlude, a song of worship to God. Between the prayer crying out for God's presence and verses 5 through to 7, which explain why God cannot be present with his people because of their current situation. So verses 4 and then eight and nine are kind of like brackets that help us understand how to respond to what those brackets contain, which is verses five, six, and seven. So let's understand verses five, six, and seven first, and then we'll look at four, eight, and nine in a moment. As we've said, verses five to seven explain why God can't be present with his people because of their current situation. Now, we know that God is holy. He is perfect. He is without sin. He is completely other. But verses 5, 6, and 7 show that this is not true of the nation of Israel. In fact, they are the complete opposite of this. We see that they know the ways of God, verse 5, and yet they continue to sin and rebel against them. And this is why, quite reasonably, God's anger is provoked. God, through the teaching of Moses, has shown this nation how to live in right relationship with him and right relationship with each other, and yet they refuse to do so. So there is a a chasm that emerges between God, who is holy, and the people who are in rebellion against his holiness. Let's look at the two images of the spiritual state of the nation that Isaiah gives us, which are found in verse 6. So the first half of verse 6, Isaiah uses this image of uncleanness. The word unclean here refers specifically to ritual uncleanness. In the Old Testament, under the Jewish law, the worship of God, who we've said is holy, required sacrifices to make people clean to worship him. And you can read all about this in the book of Leviticus, where various activities and foods are are described as unclean. And the way for someone to become clean again after engaging with them was firstly through washing and a period of time, but importantly through a sacrifice, a sacrifice to atone for the uncleanness. An unclean person needed a sacrifice of atonement to be made clean again. And this is what Isaiah is making reference to here. He's saying that the whole nation has become like one who needs a washing and a sacrifice in order to be able to be made clean and to worship God. That's the first image. The second image is in the second half of verse six, and it's the image of a shriveled up leaf. That is to say that the nation has been disconnected, cut off from their source of life. They're a leaf that has dried up and then been blown away by the wind, which is their sin. In other words, they are dead. And all of this comes from verse seven, their outright rejection of God. They're writing him out of their lives. No one calls on his name. No one seeks to lay hold of him. Now notice what these two images are crying out for, a sacrifice to make them clean and a resurrection to new life. 
So when Isaiah asks the question in verse five, how can we be saved? He's laying the groundwork for the answer. We can only be saved through one who will die in our place and raise us to new life. And this is what Isaiah was waiting for. This is why Jesus came. Church, we are a people of the cross where Christ died once and for all in our place, meaning that no other sacrifice is necessary. His sacrifice is all sufficient. We are declared clean. But he didn't stop there. He was also raised to new life. And so all of us who are baptised into Christ share in this new life. We are people of the empty cross and the empty grave. This is what Isaiah was waiting for. But for us, it has already happened. So we don't look forward to a time when forgiveness will arrive. We look back to an event when forgiveness was already given. And this is such good news because we all need forgiveness. As we look at our lives and think about the return of Jesus or think about the end of our lives, none of us can say that we're perfect. In fact, for many people, it provokes some sense of real worry, maybe even dread of how our lives will be seen by God, both the good that we've done and also the bad that we've done. But what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is this, that we don't believe that we look to the end of our lives to find out if we're forgiven. Rather, we look to the end of Jesus's life to find out if we're forgiven. And the answer for all those who trust in Jesus is an emphatic and a resounding yes. That is what Isaiah was waiting for. That is what Jesus came to bring. And that is the forgiveness that we receive today. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we can expect the return of Jesus with a sense of hope rather than a fear that we somehow won't be forgiven. Our theme, as we've said, is comfort and joy. But we can only be comforted by and rejoice in the return of Jesus if we know that he comes with forgiveness and mercy through the cross. You know, I think many of us struggle to believe that we're forgiven. It may not play out by us, you know, constantly asking the question, am I really forgiven whenever we have a chance to chat to a Christian friend? Or or it may do, but I think more often it plays out in lots of other ways. It plays out through legalism, that sense of we have to try and justify ourselves before God. We have to do enough things to get him to love us. Or it swings the other way and we become completely disengaged with God become become completely disengaged with church or with our small group because we don't want them to say something that might remind us of something that we've done wrong or are doing wrong. It can result in us being harsh and unforgiving towards others. The Bible is clear that we forgive because we know that God has already forgiven us. So if we don't know that God has already forgiven us, it logically follows that we might then struggle to forgive others. This can emerge as a sense of guilt. You know, I'm doing everything right, but I'm just so worried that God still 
doesn't love me, that it's not enough. Or alternatively, it, it manifests itself as a sense of guilt. You know, can God possibly forgive these terrible things that I've done? The wonderful news is this, that the Bible is clear. In Romans 10, verse three, it says this, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, maybe that is why Isaiah was so grieved at the fact that no one calls on God's name, verse seven, because he knows the truth that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true for you and that's true for me today. I wonder whether some of us need to deal with some stuff to do with forgiveness. Maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian and all your life you've worried about this. You've worried, what will God think of my life? Will I be forgiven? Have I done enough? Well, there's an invitation today. If if you aren't a Christian and you want to become a Christian and receive this forgiveness, then we're going to pray a prayer at the end. We would love you to pray it with us. But maybe you are a Christian and you just struggle to, with, with doubt that God has forgiven you. If that's you, that is no sign of God's unforgiveness towards you. That's simply a matter of, of learning to digest this and live this out. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and I believe God wants to do that in your life today. So we're going to pray together at the end for a revelation of God's forgiveness. Now, I can hear what some people are saying and thinking to themselves. You're saying, okay, that's all well and good. But what about all those passages in the Bible that tell us how to live? Or you might be thinking, if that's the case, if I'm forgiven, why do I still struggle with doing things wrong? Why do I still struggle with sin? Our final section today then, why are we waiting? And as Lee said in that wonderful kids activity, why are we waiting? Well, we're waiting because in the waiting, we're formed as disciples of Jesus. And church, the wonderful news for us today is that God is better at shaping us than Phil and Will are at shaping Clado. <laughs> you see, salvation is a moment but sanctification is a process. Let me explain that. We're saved and we're forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ, that moment in our lives where we say, Lord, I follow you, forgive me of my sin. But we spend our life working out that salvation. And this process of being made into the holy people of God is called sanctification. So salvation is a moment, but sanctification is is a process. Now I said we'd come back to verses four, eight, and nine because they are like brackets around verses five, six, and seven. So let's read them now side by side. Verse four, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has seen, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You Lord are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Now, when we read these passages side by side, what we see is that there are four, uh, three interconnected ideas. Verse four, the idea is waiting. 
we're waiting on God. Verse 8 is that we are being formed as we wait on God. Verse 9, we are being formed as we wait on God into the people of God. Let's unpack those a bit more. In verse 4, Isaiah praises God who, quote, acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now, this language might seem a little bit strange of, of waiting on God because the language about God before is that he's active. He's tearing the heavens to come down. So why do we need to wait on God? Is he somehow limited and can only do a few things at a time? Well, no, that is, of course, not the case. Waiting here refers to our posture. It's asking who do we seek after? And it's the polar opposite of verse 7 where Isaiah says, no one calls on your name, no one strives to lay hold on you. Waiting is the antithesis of that. Waiting is continually calling on the name of the Lord and persistently striving to lay hold of him. In other words, waiting is worship. Waiting is sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. And we find out what happens to us as we wait on God and as we worship in this way in verse 8. As we wait on God, we are shaped by God. Isaiah describes us as clay and God as the potter. Now, some imagery in the Bible is quite complicated and we need to really unpack it and uh, to really dig into it to understand it. Other imagery, beautifully, is quite simple but profound. And this is the latter. We are being shaped and formed by God into, verse 9, a people who have learned to ask for forgiveness and to be his people. As I've said, this image is profound but it's also simple. So what does this mean for us in light of what we've already seen? That we are waiting for a true saviour, not a temporary solution, and that we are forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, this simple and profound truth has a simple and profound implication, and it's this. God gets to shape our lives that through our discipleship to Jesus, learning from Jesus, God puts new things in our lives and he takes old things out of our lives. And this is what the season of Advent in part is about. It's about being shaped and formed into a people who are ready for the return of Jesus. It's about setting aside a time to renew our focus on Jesus. If you want to extend this, this image beyond what Isaiah talks about, um, it is the potter's wheel spinning just that little bit faster in Advent to quicken our shaping and our formation. As I said earlier, there's, there's a question for us. If we are saved already, then why do I struggle with sin? Well, the answer is because sin is still being shaped out of us. The process has begun and it will be brought to completion at the end of our lives when Jesus returns. And that is what God is wanting to engage us in in Advent. I wonder what God might be calling you to to have shaped out of your life in this season. 
Maybe it's some stuff to do with unforgiveness that we're going to pray into in just a moment. Maybe it's some habits that just don't honour God, and, and you know that. And God wants to shape those out of your life at this time. Maybe it's attitudes towards money or sex or power or anything else that is significant in this life that God wants to shape and form and heal and challenge by his word. These are all things that we're called to engage with in this season of Advent. But Advent isn't just about God taking stuff out. In fact, I think one of the really significant things that God does in Advent is he shapes stuff into our lives. I wonder what God wants to put into your life in this season. Maybe he wants to renew the discipline of prayer in your life. Maybe he wants to um, bring the discipline of reading your Bible every day into your life, or fasting, or giving, or serving. Maybe he wants to renew your heart for those who are poor or hurting or in pain. Maybe he wants to renew your heart for people that Nest works with, who are refugees who have suffered terribly at the hands of societies and states. Maybe God in this season wants to recenter your perspective of your work on Jesus. These are all things that God, I believe, is wanting to do in us this Advent. So I'd love you to take a a second to think, just a moment, what might God be calling you into? What might God want to shape into your life? And what might God want to shape out of your life this Advent? We've got four weeks of the potter's wheel spinning that little bit quicker. Let's place ourselves in the hands of God and say, Lord, shape me for Jesus' glory. I pray. Amen. So in response to this, as I said earlier, there's, there may be some people watching who you want to become a Christian, that you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian at the moment, or you're never really sure if you've made a decision, and you want to pray that prayer, maybe for the first time. So I'm going to lead us in that prayer now. The band is just going to start to play over us. And I invite you, if this is you, to maybe put out your hands. You're receiving forgiveness and love and mercy from Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, so that I may know eternal life and perfect forgiveness. I'm sorry for the ways that my life hasn't honoured you. Would you forgive me from those things? Lord, may the thought of the end of my life or the return of Jesus fill me with comfort and joy because I know you. I commit to follow Jesus today. Amen. Amen. And if you just prayed that, we would love to hear from you and get in touch with you and help you start following Jesus. You are not in this alone. We are in this together. So drop us a message and I would love to be in touch with you in the next couple of days or as soon as you drop us a message. The second thing that I'd love us to pray into is this theme of forgiveness. 
And maybe you know that you enter this Advent time struggling to believe that God has forgiven you. Maybe you enter this Advent time fearful of Jesus' second coming, his return, because you, you, you just doubt that you're forgiven. Well, the wonderful news is that we don't need to live in that any longer. So I want to invite you to maybe take your hand and put it on your heart. There's nothing magic about this. It's just uh, an outward sign of an invisible reality that we need God to minister to our hearts. And I'm going to pray for you now. Lord God, would you pour out your spirit on all those who have got their hand on their hearts now? watching at home, in their bedrooms or living rooms. Lord, would you fill them with the assurance of your forgiveness through Jesus Christ? May they hear the words of the gospel. All who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the truth of the gospel written in Romans 10 verse 3. And wherever you are, I pray that you would know that today in Jesus' name. Amen.